and these are the stories of the heart of the community in the heartland. This series brings to life the oral histories of journalists in North and South Dakota, newspaper legends who devoted their lives to covering their rural communities. By now, a few have passed on, but all of their legacies endure, and their history is forever preserved in the newspapers they leave behind, as well as through these stories. These episodes are sponsored by the North Dakota Newspaper Association and the South Dakota Newspaper Association. Since the 1880s, both have advocated for the public's right to know and for the importance of newspapers in a democracy. Several of the journalists featured in our series have long family histories with the newspaper industry. In this episode, we explore the early influences on our journalists and what the news industry was like decades ago. We begin with Jane Brandt, who had no intention of working in the newspaper business. We begin with Jane Brandt, who had no intention of working in the newspaper industry. This was her husband's family's business, and then she got a call that changed everything. We ended up back here in Hebron, or ended up in Hebron. So we made the move and we started um, July 1st, 1965, and I was going to finally be a stay-at-home mom. And Dick lasted three days down there, and he called and said, uh, I can't do it alone. He said, we have to make some different arrangements. You're going to have to find some babysitters. So three days later, I was, I was down there, and I was, believe me, I didn't know anything. And um, I've been there ever since, 51 years. But I didn't know what lead was. I didn't know what linotype was. I didn't know what presses were. And in those days, I wore you wore dresses. Um, slacks very soon came in to, to play. Um, but anyway, big two-story brick building. In fact, next year it'll be 100 years old. I just found that out this week. Um, it was built to be a three-story building. Um, they thought maybe they could add on another story someday. Hot, a brick building in North Dakota in the summer months. Um, I know some days it was 100, maybe over 100 in there. And we would get big wash tubs and fill it with huge chunks of ice and put fans behind it, just trying to cool it down at all. And the line of type, um, I, would, I could set type on it, but it scared me. I, I was scared the whole time because every once in a while this hot lead would shoot out at you. Um, every Saturday morning, you took the pages apart. You melted the lead down at 500 degrees to melt the lead, and you poured it into these things with little squares that were called pigs, and then you'd, they would harden, and you'd carry those that lead over to the line type and start on the next week's paper. We set our big heads and um, small heads, even some of the grocery store ads by hand with bigger wooden letters. Um, it was a job, and then seven years later, I believe, uh, Dick and I were divorced, and I ended up running it by myself since then. And those pages weighed over 100 pounds at least, and I, you had to carry them from the front into the back to the big press, and I couldn't carry 100 pounds, so I'd put the bottom of the page on the top of my legs hold the top of it and if you dropped it you'd have to start over from scratch and just shuffle along until I got into the back room and got that hundred pound page on the press 
and um, you, I have, a, I think, we'll put a picture, we have a picture of the press, it was a Cranston, developed, I think it was manufactured in 1890, but um, you stood at the top of the press feeding the sheets of paper in, and then it came through a folder, and one, wigs were big in the 60s, and one time that folder caught my wig, and it went through the folder, and I, you know what, I don't know, most women will know what you, what you look like when your wig has uh, removed. I couldn't believe that there was my hair going through the folder. But um, another time my friend that was working for us put her feet into her boots, and somehow they got filled with ink. I mean, there's a, one time she was sitting at the linotype, and an animal came running through the door, an otter or whatever it was. Well, we all ended up staying on top of the desk. I mean, we were just petrified. A man came in and took care of it for us. John Andrews' family also got into the newspaper business in a unique way, when his father's stepmother kicked him out of the house. He had accepted the invitation of his stepmother to get out of the house when he's about 17 years old. And his father, who tried many things in his life, none of them very successfully, took a fling at homesteading on the Canadian side, uh, north of Crosby, or closer to south of Estevan. And so he, he finally, uh, his stepmother wanted him to get out of her, her life, so he walked down the portal. He did farm work. He was, like I said, I think he said 17 years old about the time. And his farm work ended when winter came. There was no welfare office. And he happened to be visiting uh, with a, a newspaper publisher. He was always a great visitor. And he was asking him what he was going to do for the winter. Well, Canada was wet, but North Dakota was dry at the time, and Portal was right on the border. So he said, uh, I'm going to be delivering, making some deliveries for the, the people, even though it wasn't considered breaking the law as much as uh, avoiding the, the customs, you know. And uh, this old newspaper publisher, and I say old advisedly, I don't know how old he was, but he, he said to him, you know, I hate to see you get involved with those people. He said, uh, I've got a room over at the print shop. He says, come and work with me. I can't pay anything, but I'll give you enough money for cigarettes and for the essentials of life, and I'll feed you and put you up over the winter months. And so he accepted it, and so that's where he became an apprentice printer. And uh, it was a long journey to getting into the newspaper business for himself, but uh, he moved on to... Uh, uh, Ambrose, which was the largest city at the time, had two newspapers, did printing work for them, and uh, finally was invited to run the newspaper for some businessmen at Noonan. And uh, they eventually gave the newspaper to him uh, because they liked his work. And uh, that's where he started and uh, eventually bought into the newspaper at Crosby. And uh, that's where he was when struggling during the Depression years when I came along.
And my dad uh, was a different kind of person in the newspaper business. He was more of a caretaker. He wasn't aggressive. And I don't know where I got it, but I was a much more uh, aggressive nature. And so when I went in, I was going to do everything the best and the, you know, up to my standards, whatever they were. And so I started selling advertising. And I was one of the early weekly newspaper publishers who started going to city council meetings and school board meetings. And, and I was one of the first to learn uh, some of the photography needs of the newspaper. And they were rudimentary for their time, but, uh, but uh, I started, I went into the business with him on a salary. And, you know, I had a good propensity for selling advertising and making money. And part of it was just due to the, it was the right time. You know, it was the post-World War II years and expansion was coming on and uh, the town was growing and successful. The business district was and uh, and uh, I, I, I think I was pretty entrepreneurial and so I was successful from the beginning financially as well as I think I always felt I put out a good newspaper product for my time. Unable to do anything near like they can do today. But most news came through the door. Very few, if any, weekly newspapers had reporters. The staff was all printing staff, production staff. Might have a secretary. We would hire people to write local news notes at maybe 50 cents a week. Uh, as the first time I hired a, a secretary fairly early in my career to help with writing a few stories. But when I started in the business, I, I mean, I literally did it all. I took the pictures. I sold the ads. I wrote the news, whatever was written. Uh, my dad now, before me, he only wrote news, rewrote news that came through the door if it needed it, you know. But uh, uh, it was my idea, and I don't know where I got it from, but uh, my idea to start doing more with news than weekly newspapers did in those days. And I can remember I was one of the first to start going to school board meetings and city council meetings. And uh, I had a few publishers when we go to newspaper conventions. I always loved to go to newspaper conventions. I love being around newspaper people all my life. I always thought they were a special breed. But they too were mostly printers uh, in those days with varying degrees of journalistic skills or abilities. And a few of them I remember, a couple of them I remember mocking me that 
I went to school board meetings, city council meetings, I didn't have enough to do or something. But I was really driven. I mean, I, when I say full-time work, it, I don't mean nine to five. I mean, if, if I wasn't going to an important meeting, or I was always a town booster, active in town activities, I was active in JCs, I was act. I mean, I was gone every night. My poor wife had to rear our children. And um, well, I was lucky I had a remarkable wife because you know, she, organized, she ran the household. And uh, that was by a decision early on. She would like to do it, and I wanted to do it because I was totally gone most of the time. I was, except I saved a niche for participating in some of my, some of my kids' school activities and stuff. So I, I don't mean to suggest that I wasn't uh, a part of their lives. But, uh, and I think maybe I was more a part of it than they realized. But uh, 10 o'clock on Monday night or Tuesday night is when I developed the film for the camera and made the pictures that were going to go in the newspaper. And of course, there's a whole lot more arduous process than that. But from the beginning, the technology was changing. Uh, all the time, and uh, uh, wasn't long until uh, till we started doing more photography. I can remember as a teenager, my dad uh, he took me to newspaper conventions. The first one I went to was after my sophomore year. And he's always good about introducing me to his publishing friends. In those days, the Newspaper Association was made up. Everybody who came to the convention, everybody had a newspaper. They were a publisher and an editor and chief janitor. And uh, as there's, it was more of a fraternity than it was. I remember my dad introducing me to some of these early publishers, and I was kind of in awe. I remember feeling, wow, I'm big time now. I'm with, I'm with the newspaper publishers. Uh, kind of silly, I guess, but uh, it's, um, I, I guess I was self-directed to do this. I think um, I've never really contemplated this a great deal. But I think from the outset, I was, I was a believer that this is what I was born to do. Truman Ness was also born into a newspaper legacy established by his father in northeastern North Dakota in 1922. All of us in, in our family uh, worked on the newspaper from the time we were pretty young. And, you know, we did, did little things and then bigger things. And there were, uh, well, there were seven of us in the family, five boys and then uh, two girls at the end. And each of us uh, got uh, started doing printing type work. I suppose by the time we were early teens or late preteens. 
and in, uh, they, so we learned, uh, we learned work, you know, from the time we were pretty young. We were never, you know, made to do hard work, but uh, we were on the job a lot. It was a dirty job that sometimes left a mark. Yeah, yeah, and fingernails are hard to keep clean because they're the ink that all get in the end of the nail and stuff. Uh, and uh, one of the things that uh, <coughs> we all, I guess, ended up doing uh, in making uh, well, uh, casts of, like what they did with pictures at that time, uh, the, uh, pictures, the people and uh, ads and that, that that the companies would send would be in a uh, uh, kind of a mold. And uh, you uh, put that in, a, in this uh, setup, poured and melted and lead on it. And so by the time we uh, got through high school, we had a lot of slow burns on our arms and fingers and things. Bob Lind is best known for his work at the Fargo Forum. But back in the 1960s, he had his own share of experience working for the weekly newspaper in Laramore, North Dakota, a town of about 1,700 people at the time. Eventually, the long hours and business side of the industry became too much. I don't, I don't, I don't think I'm going to make it all the way, spend the rest of my life here. I don't think I can do it for my family. So I just remember, <laughs> I remember this. I, 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 I like the forum. I took the forum for very, and, um, and, we, and, we, and, and my wife and I, we liked Fargo. I mean, we liked other towns too, but if we ever, the rare times we had a chance to get away like for a weekend, a big deal for us was to go to Fargo. And, and we, we liked the town and I liked the paper. So I just remember one, one time, kind of spur of the moment, I, I rattled off a letter to the forum and said, any possibility you'd have a job for me. And you know, nowadays it, you, they tell you the right way to have a resume. You do so and so, you list you, jobs you've had and recommend, you know, uh, people who could give you recommendations. Uh, you know, this was, I, I remember I wrote and said, hey, I'll, I'll I just don't inform a letter like I'm talking, I said, hey, I'll dump baskets, I'll do anything. You know, whatever you want to do, whatever, I just, I'd, I'd be interested in a job. Well, Day or two later, I got a I got a phone call from Lloyd Sveen, who was the managing editor. I think it was the title at the forum. He said, "Yeah, come on down." So we went down and talked to him. And you know, I told him I had never never worked a day in a daily newspaper, no clue. You know, he said, "Oh, he said, that's okay." And he's and he said. We, we want to hire you. Well, I said, I got to, great. I said, well, I got to sell my paper first, you know. I, okay, he said, you go sell it. When you sell it, when you get sold, it will come. Well, I went, so I tried to sell the paper. We've got an agent or some guy who does this kind of thing. And, and the Laramore Pioneer was not a hot property. <laughs> it, it, wasn't, it wasn't selling, it went on. And every once in a while, Lloyd would, or from the forum, would call up and say, how you doing? 
I'd say, well, Kevin's, you know, it's okay. And and I remember one time, it'd been, it was well over a year. I called them and I said, you still, st still, he's, no problem. We got a job for you. You know, you, got, you know. Well, Terry, it took it took two years to sell the paper. Finally, after two years, it got sold. It's, boy, I called them up and I said, so they come on down, and they they hired me. <laughs> His future boss, Bill Merciel Sr., also didn't initially intend to work for the forum. And then his father-in-law, Norman D. Black Jr., from the legendary Black family, brought him into the family legacy. I had a good job in Minneapolis, and, and Norm, uh, when he asked me to come back, come up here, there were no guarantees, no promises. You know, he said, go to work in the advertising department and see what happens next. So we, we did. And uh, just, you know, just one thing led to another, and, and this vacancies opened up in the company. Um, I had the opportunity to move into them, and that's how I worked my way through the whole company. The advertising industry of the early 1960s was legendary in its own right. Well, it was a no-brainer. You know, I mean, the newspapers were an unregulated, unregulated utility. So uh, the advertising staff would come in in the morning, and Jim Black was the ad director, and he insisted that everybody in the staff read the newspaper, mm -hmm. particularly all of the ads. And then the content as well. So you'd go out and make us, you know, on your sales calls, you could talk intelligently about what was going on in the world. <laughs> so they'd read the newspaper every morning, and at 10 o'clock, they'd all move out and end up at some coffee shop and drink coffee for half an hour or so. I mean, you know, you think about it now and the competition and how, how it's changed. It was, it really was not much of a job. And, the, and the, I mean, in terms of competitiveness, there wasn't any competition. And if you got a job at Form or a newspaper, you really had it made. So the biggest decisions that we'd have to make each week was not how many ads we were going to get in, you know, maybe we'll have room for you this week, if not, come back next week. I mean, what a way to treat customers. But, you know, where would, where would the biggest advertiser, the two big, uh, largest department store advertisers, which one would be on page three on Sunday? I mean, you know, mm. what a problem. Huh? <laughs> we used to say, they, they said in the business that newspapers in those days, you know, they take a wheelbarrow down the middle of Main Street and they throw all the money, and you've probably heard this, at the end of Main Street, they'd go into the bank and deposit it all in the bank. Well, it wasn't quite that easy, but, you know, uh, it, it was a different ballgame. Early in his career, Marcel felt the pressure of living up to his in-laws' legacy. Well, uh, a lot of challenges, you know, put, put a lot of pressure on me, I guess. I didn't think so at the time. Uh, but, I, you know, I couldn't really be friendly with the other employees. It was kind of a different situation. So we kind of, we had to, we had to watch that aspect of it. And uh, I, I guess I just could have blended in like another employee. But that wasn't my, my lifestyle, I mean, my motivation, you know, I wanted to do better. I had to prove something, I think, to, uh, well, to myself first, and then to, you know, to Norm and, and Margaret Jane and, and Jane, too. So I worked hard. You know, I, I, I came early and I stayed late and I, I didn't goof off. I worked hard. I had no idea what this company was all about. And I started in the ad department. I hadn't heard of the blacks, for crying out loud. And then as I started working for the company, I said, holy man, you know, this is, this is a big deal. and It could be bigger. Uh, so it, it took a while for that to click in. And, and you know what, Terry? I think it really clicked in 
when we started expanding the company, then we realized how dynamic this company could be mm -hmm. with the potential that we had to grow it financially and because of the human resource element that we had involved really good people who could do it. That's when I, when I finally figured out, boy, you know, we, we've got a tiger by the tail here. Roger Bailey's father, Morris, started their family legacy in the newspaper business in Minnesota in the mid-1950s. In 1955, he and my mother purchased the newspaper in Bertha, Minnesota, a small weekly newspaper, and uh, uh, I went to work immediately uh, because I found it interesting, I think, and because my parents were depending on on me and, and my next oldest brother uh, to help in, in that endeavor. And uh, we didn't do anything very glamorous at the start, but uh, we did the little things that we could to help. Cleaning, uh, sweeping the floors, uh, didn't take long for us to learn how to throw back type into the California job cases. This was a letterpress newspaper, of course, in 1955. And, uh, we didn't do anything very intricate at the start, but uh, I, I do have a photo that was taken of me when I was 12 years old running a, a CNP job press. So, so I, I, I did get some activity uh, of some magnitude, some importance. They, my parents were very supportive and, 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 and as I mentioned, hardworking people. Uh, so hard, in fact, that uh, when we when they purchased this newspaper in Bertha, Minnesota, uh, we lived in an apartment in the back of the newspaper office, uh, which was not a highly unusual uh, circumstance back in those days. Uh, the drawback that was, that was obvious was that my parents spent too much time in the front part of the building operating the newspaper and, and uh, perhaps not as much in the back uh, in their home life. But, uh, they were still, they were still caring parents, and uh, uh, they never missed a, a concert in school. They never missed a, a basketball game. They, you know, they were, they were with us. We we never felt neglected at all. So it was it was good. Weekly newspapering uh, in the 50s and 60s was was uh, was was quite passive. You know he. He, he wrote a column every week. Uh, editorials were infrequent. Uh, we lived in a small community, and, and uh, uh, that sheds kind of a different light on, on that aspect of newspapering. But uh, uh, when, an, when an issue came up in the community that, that he deemed relevant, uh, he wrote editorials, uh, but he was an extremely fair man. And uh, uh, it was never an editorial that was demeaning. It was never an editorial that was demanding. It was an editorial that explored uh, options on a particular question that, that might have come up in the community. Uh, so he was, he, was, he was in an era when this was common, I think, uh, much more so now than, than now when when the editorials can become uh, very close to being vindictive in nature, and uh, and uh, it was different back then, and and uh, 
he, he, he poured his heart and soul into that weekly newspaper and uh, worked long hours, tedious hours. This is letterpress newspaper days. And uh, it was not easy. It was, uh, it was uh, days before air conditioning. It was days before electric typewriters. It was, uh, it was days of, of hot lead and, and, and casting and uh, smoky, hazy conditions. Uh, at times in, in the newspaper office, simply because of the type of material that we were working with. But he was a hard worker, put in long days. Uh, in addition to operating a, a newspaper, uh, uh, a job printing operation, which was common back then for, for most newspaper people. And uh, he did it. Uh, did it largely with the, with the help of his wife, my mother, and one, and one employee uh, in addition to, to his two sons that were there. So it was, it was, a, it was a, a different era, a different approach to newspapering. Bailey's mother also played a significant role in the family business. Her role primarily was, was handling the office, uh, the subscriptions, the classified ads, uh, uh, the customers that came in, but she also became a very proficient linotype operator, uh, partly because she was just eager to, to help in any way she could, and, and I think she enjoyed it tremendously. Uh, she, she was able to uh, accomplish uh, what was called back then in linotype days of hanging the linotype. And that was being able to, to punch out the, the letters, the mats that were coming down, and, and filling a line before the previous line had gone to the, to the mold. And so she, she was tremendous. She, she, she could hang, uh, when she was working with good, clean copy, she could hang every line. And that was, that was the epitome of a linotype operator. Uh, in, in that time. Mike Jacobs took a less technical approach to his first newspaper. He used just pencil and paper for his Jacobs Journal, which he created in eighth grade thanks to the influence of his mother and a teacher. Uh, because uh, my mother and Miss Hornberger had conspired to make a journalist out of me, so I thought, well, you're going to be a journalist, you got to have a newspaper. So yeah, that, I think the first, the first issue had a story about one of the cows stepping on a kitten. A murder story. <laughs> I printed it with pencil and paper. I, 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 I had a piece of typewriter paper. I couldn't type then. I, I later became a really good typist, but I wasn't a typist then. Uh, so I just ruled it off and I, I, I made a nameplate at the top and then I had headlines and little stories. It was just one page. And you know, it had a subscription of, uh, a circulation of I, I guess five, uh, my parents and my uh, my siblings who were home. Yeah, but I only made one copy. I mean, it was it was it was you know, <laughs> it wasn't exactly a mass medium. But yeah, so that was the Jacobs Journal. He had the same level of ambition as a young journalist at the Dickinson Press. I think the thing that is probably the most difficult is that there's no rhythm in uh, in a 
in a journalistic life because you never know you never know when there's going to be something happening I mean I you know <laughs> Uh, I left. I left the table at a family dinner uh, one night in Grand Forks because there'd been a, a bizarre crime, and I just felt I needed to be at the newsroom. Uh, but the best story is on uh, about five o'clock in the afternoon on July thirty-first, nineteen seventy-one. The police. The siren went off in Dickinson, and I dropped what I was doing and ran out to cover whatever it was. And John Baker, who was the editor, grabbed my shirt and said, "You're getting married in an hour. <laughs> we'll send somebody else." <laughs> Growing up in Northfield, Minnesota, Roger Casa also developed an early fondness for newspapers. When I was a kid growing up, I took my hometown newspaper and I read that word for word all the way through. He got a job at the local paper as soon as he could. And uh, I, went, I went into the, into the uh, press room and watched the papers be, be printed, help fold them, and uh, then I would take them, put them in my car, and take them around to all the towns around us and uh, distribute them to the people. It was a, it was a very good job. The biggest influence on his early journalism career came from a professor and not in a good way. See, I probably shouldn't tell you this story, but I'm gonna tell you anyway. When I was going to Augustana, I had a, I had a teacher there who called me into his office when, uh, when I was a freshman, no, I was a junior, called me into his office and he said, are you going to be a journalism, be a writer? And I said, yeah, I hope to. He says, we will never make it. You don't have a big enough, uh, 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 you, don't, you don't know big enough words, and uh, you, you, you just, just don't have it to be a writer. And that probably was the most influential thing that anybody could have said to me. I mean, he told me that I couldn't make it, and I decided that I was going to show him that he was wrong. I did. Casa went on to work for the Huron Plainsman in South Dakota for over 50 years. Wayne Lyford also got involved in the journalism business at an early age. Well, I think I wanted to get into the writing area. I knew the printing business very well. When I was in high school at uh, Denison, I got a job in the print shop. And at that time, the, there was a shortage of printers because all of them were in the service fighting for our country. So uh, there was a shortage, definitely, and I had by that time, I had a pretty good experience in printing and knowledgeable. And uh, at Denison, I was hired to set, he set headlines for, for the uh, news stories. And I was, um, ran, ran newspaper presses and I ran a big newspaper uh, rotary press. And I did that after school and on the weekends. So I was a busy kid. He recalls the impact of World War II on the news industry. That was World War II. Yeah. So all the people were over in Europe. And once we'd get the printers uh, 
what we'd call the floaters. They would come in and work maybe a month, get their paycheck and leave and go somewhere else. But uh, so there's definitely a, really a shortage. Dick Lee also remembered the impact of World War II. When I was born in 1934, so I was about seven or eight during World War II. And my dad established a national reputation because he sent the newspaper to all five or six hundred people who were in the service, all drafted of course, and in many, many of the theaters of war. Uh, he sent the newspaper to all of those people every week. And not all newspapers did that, very few newspapers did that. So those people saw my dad as a way for them to communicate with the community. So they, when they wrote to the messenger, they knew that dad was going to reprint the letter and people would know what they were doing, whether they were in the South Pacific or whether they were in Europe or whether they were in training bases in the U.S. Lee has many fond memories of his childhood working for his family's newspaper, the Marissa Messenger in Southern Illinois, a publication his grandfather started in 1912. I began running the Rotary Press probably when I was in the fourth or fifth grade. My father paid me $4 a week for a 40-hour week. <laughs> Sweeping floors, doing press work, delivering funeral notices, being around the newspaper full-time in the summer, and then working there after school uh, while I was growing up. Enjoyed it, loved it. There's something special about working with your father, and particularly working with your father when not only was he, he the editor, because in a weekly newspaper at that time, you worked in the front shop, you worked in the back shop, and um, he did press work as well, and so it was a lot of working with hands as well as working with minds, and so it was really a lot of fun working with my dad. Most of the time, probably, but not all the time. Um, I envied kids who were making more money picking apples, but. Uh, and obviously working for my dad paid for my education. So my chief job was running the press. Now the press was a rotary press, so it was a big press. And I would turn the press on and off, but it was an open switchboard that carried 440 volts. So it wasn't a place where you could, even as a little kid, make mistakes. And. Uh, the press was big and my job was taking papers off the press, but you were also responsible for watching the whole press and making sure that nothing happened. So I did that, but then I did some job work and I did other things. I uh, mailed and single wrapped papers and just endless things to do and so I worked with my hands as well. And then as I grew up uh, 
one of the things my dad did, and, you know, I kind of joked because my, I don't remember my father's pants ever being completely clean because they were splattered with lead from casting plates that went on the press. And so when I grew up big enough to handle a plate which was about 40 pounds, then I began to do that too. And I also cast the uh, ads and things like that that we use for the newspaper. So um, I just did it. I mean, it was just just something you did. And, and it was, as I look back, it was a special era of newspapering because that era is completely gone. It's all on the computer screen now. But uh, then it was all with hands. Verlin Hofer's father also had a tremendous influence on the news industry. Edward Hofer got his first job in newspapers when he was 14 and remained committed his entire life. But uh, he was a workaholic, there's no doubt about that. He, I don't know how he managed as well as he did. It's always been a mystery to me. I went back and looked at some of his, his old ledgers and I said, how did he provide for us? How did he buy a home? He all drove a good car. Uh, I just couldn't figure it out. <laughs> I, thought, I thought if I could have done it. But, uh, so he was, uh, died in a little old journal, uh, newspaper person, and he, he just absolutely wasn't going to give up. He still came down to the shop when he was 90 years old. And, he passed away when he was 94. But, uh, he never gave up. The same work ethic was instilled in Verlinhofer when he was growing up and helping at the paper. Well, <laughs> I think it's fair to say they expected me to be on the job. <laughs> and uh, so uh, I usually was. But we had a lot of fun. And uh, the work just seemed to... Uh, be taken for granted. Wasn't much time off, that's for sure. Six days a week, every week. Six days a week and Wednesdays until midnight. Get that paper out. Today, the newspaper industry complains about the internet and social media. But back in the day, there were other foes. And, uh, and of course, one thing that really just irked small town editors back then was radio. Oh, that's terrible. Don't spend any money on radio advertising. And, and shoppers. Shopper news, you know, little mm -hmm. things they call shoppers. Oh, hello, advertising. Those were taboo, too. No. Just couldn't say anything bad enough about them. So that was the environment back 60, 70 years ago. For the Dakota Journalist Podcast, I'm Terry Finneman, with sound editing by Savannah Wakefield. And these are the stories of the heart of the community in the heartland. Mm -hmm.